0: Just wash
1: it all, wash it all away, it will you, you and Ladies and gentlemen, rangers and cadets, welcome to Movie Morgue Base, the last bastion for film autopsy podcasting. I'm your host, Silvio Emery.
0: And I'm Annie Neller.
1: And today we are talking about the 2018 film Pacific Rim Uprising, sequel to the 2013 Guillermo del Toro mechanized epic Pacific Rim. So, um, what is Pacific Rim, what is Pacific Rim Uprising, and how did we get to this point? Uh, Let's talk a little bit about context and what this movie kind of means to us. Annie, um, what is Pacific Rim to you and what were you expecting going into this film?
0: Um, Pacific Rim to me was a movie that I really, really loved. I had a lot of fun at it, and it was kind of fun to see Guillermo del Toro get to direct this original concept. Um, it was really fun, and I didn't really know that they were doing a sequel till I saw the trailer for Pacific Rim Uprising a couple months ago. And the trailers looked trashy. I didn't really know what to expect other than a really terrible sequel based on how the trailers were cut, and so I didn't have very high hopes for this one, and it also made me feel kind of bad because the first Pacific Rim was something that I really enjoyed. So, I had really mixed feelings going into this movie. How about you, though? What What was your context for Pacific Rim originally? Well,
1: Pacific Rim is kind of what put Guillermo del Toro on the radar for me. And yes, I know, I know. Heresy, heresy. Hellboy was great. But also, Hellboy and Hellboy 2, I kind of skipped over Hellboy 2 for a long time. And, yeah, just because, like, in, in that kind of, like, big fantasy film, generally, like, the sequels aren't as good. So... I did really enjoy the first one, and that was kind of before I really started having this kind of conscious vocabulary of directors and filmmakers and so on and so forth. So, uh, Pacific Rim, there was a big gap, five years between Hellboy 2 and Pacific Rim. So, that's kind of when Guillermo del Toro kind of jumped up onto my radar. And I really enjoyed it, because, like, I've always loved, like, you know, anime and cartoons, you know, Transformers, stuff like that, giant robot stuff. So, this was right up my alley. And... There have been films with giant robots in them before, you know, Power Rangers and so Transformers and so on, but this was the first one that really, like, made something, first of all, so much bigger and had that gravitas, and it was one of my favorite movies of that year with an absolutely kick-ass soundtrack, uh, you know, and I, I think I might have been in Australia at the time, I'm not 100, no, not, not yet at that point, but, like, I had a buddy who was really into it, and the soundtrack kicked ass, so it was one of my favorite films, and... For this film, I've been kind of keeping up with it because, like, this is one of those ones that's been in, you know, kind of development hell for a while. Yeah. Guillermo Guillermo del Toro was going to work on it and he penned the script and then he wasn't going to work on it and so on and so forth. And when it was announced that it would be going moving towards without Guillermo del Toro, I was just – I wrote it off completely. Because one of the things that made the original movie special was this – sense of scale and of detail and of lived in because for the original movie they developed 21 jaegers and 51 kaiju is we were looking at a small vertical slice of a much bigger universe and i felt like this film couldn't possibly live up to that and the other thing though is that the marketing for this film i think has been very poor it's been um, in terrible in particular yeah it shows off a lot of, I think, the worst shots of the film, and also sh- frames them in such a way that it highlights some of the things that we've been kind of insecure about going into this film, like this sense that the robots are much more human they move much quicker, and it's much more bright and colorful. So I was having very low expectations up until about a week ago, because a week ago, Trailer 2 dropped. And what trailer two shows is a lot of stuff that should have been in trailer one, like this idea that Obsidian Fury, the Black uh, Jaeger, is actually an unknown quantity, because the entire trailer from the entire first trailer just shows, hey, look, we got teams of Jaegers now, and they got big goofy weapons, and while yes. It is theoretically possible that I could have watched that trailer and encountered the shots and realized that, hey, the black one with the orange visor isn't in any of the group shots. Maybe it's an outside force, but <laughs> it's a movie trailer. I don't want fucking yeah. homework. So yeah. just establishing that context of, oh, that's an unknown enemy made it go from, oh, this is going to be like hot nonsense to eh, this could be fun nonsense, you know?
0: Yeah. No, that was kind of how I felt about it, too. Once I started seeing more promos and stuff, I saw promos on Instagram that made me think, okay, you know, like, this might be worthwhile seeing, and And then you suggested uh, we see it.
1: So how did it come out? Like, did it live up to our expectations? How did we enjoy Pacific Rim Uprising? Before we go diving into the film, let's just say, like, we've talked about who we are and how we relate to both Del Toro and to the Pacific Rim franchise. So let's now talk about, now that we've established those credentials, let's say, how did this do? Like, what did we enjoy it? Did we have fun? Did we like it? Did we recommend it? And so before we go ahead and jump the spoilers to everything else.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. I really, really enjoyed this movie. I had a lot of fun watching this. I know that the critics have not been so kind to this movie, but I actually had a really great time. I would recommend that people go and see this. It's pretty fun. Um, I think that the pacing of the movie kind of leaves off in the latter third, but I still think that there's a lot of fun stuff. And there's a bit of corny stuff, too, but I mean... they I, I don't think this is quite as good as the original Pacific Rim. But I think it's far, far better of a movie than we were led to believe from the trailers. How about you, though? What did you think of Pacific Rim 2 Uprising?
1: I enjoyed this a lot, and... I make this point a lot when we're talking about movies is this is, I think, a fantastic immersive movie in that it's very fun to watch as you're watching it. Uh, The moment to moment action is really fun, really kinetic, really exciting. I have some issues with it from a more structural and analytical standpoint, but nothing that's really stopping me from enjoying the movie as I'm watching it. And uh, I recommend it. It was a lot more fun than I was expecting. And, you know, I had really terrible expectations for, like, almost a year leading up to this film. So the fact that I enjoyed it so much, I think, is fantastic and a testament to some of the things they chat. The cast is entirely charismatic. The fights are big and bombastic. And it has a very different energy to the original film. The original film is more somber and a little grim. A little bit more you know gritty and washed out this is kind of like if you took you know the original pacific rim and mixed it with like power rangers or you know old yeah. super sentai shows or you know not the bay formers but like the 1984 transformers and we like it's a little bit more fun a little bit more personality at the cost of a little bit of you know seriousness and gravitas that's i think my short review
0: Yeah, and I think that works really well. Like you were saying, all the performers are very charismatic, but not only that, a lot of them have really good chemistry with each other, which is something that I haven't seen um, in other movies that feature like big robots or big animals. So I'm thinking specifically of Godzilla, the Transformers movies, the recent movie Kong Skull Island, which is a disaster of its own. The cast has a lot of really great chemistry with one another, and I think that's partly what makes this movie fun to watch, even if it isn't quite the old Pacific Rim.
1: Okay, so real fast, uh, let's just define what this movie is. By the way, this is the part where we get to spoilers, so if you want to go see this movie and then get back to us, please do. This is where you jump ship. Um, But let's describe briefly what this movie is before you guys do jump ship, and I'm going to go ahead and say, actually, no, my, my description is going to be a little bit spoilery, so jump off anyways. But Annie, uh, can you tell us what this movie is about real fast, like in a line or less?
0: Um, I would summarize this movie as when you're here, you're family.
1: <laughs> okay, that's cheesy as shit.
0: Yes, it is um, cheesy as shit. I would say <laughs> this is
1: this is kind of the big Hollywood Ava, shitty Ava movie that you didn't want. But... It's not connected <laughs> to the anyway. franchise, so it doesn't... It's not connected to the franchise, so it doesn't have that uh, pressure on it to be that serious and somber and of artistic merit, but it's also just, like, this movie's anime is fuck, and I oh, love it.
0: yeah, yeah, so no, <laughs> t-
1: t- let's, I let's, totally agree with let's, that. Let's get straight into the dissection, let's cut this up and look at what makes it tick. So first things first, let's talk performances. Uh, John Boyega fucking yes. killing it as Jake yes. Pentecost. Uh, you know, he's he's got his own British, he's not trying to put on an American accent. Is it just me or is like the one-sided fade kind of like his signature now? Because he had it in all the interviews as well.
0: Yeah, I think it just, he does really well in a high-low fade with a stripe. Like, it looks great and that's his deal. I also like how much um he's got a, like a kind of playful self-deprecating swagger in this movie that I really enjoy. Um and also at times like talking about himself, talking about other guys and calling them hot, like the scene with yeah. the sprinkles. Yeah. Just, John, yes, Boyega, John Boyega bisexual
1: icon. What? And I love yes. that. And that's one thing I'm going to throw out there that I really loved As kind of a general note is this is one aspect where I will say that this film is strictly superior to the uh, original is this is way gayer. And if you think that's a problem, get the fuck off my podcast because you're not welcome here. Second of all, like because here's the thing. There's two things. One, John Boyega as Jake Pentecost has that throwaway line calling, you know, Nate Lambert as portrayed by Scott Eastwood hot. It's like and it's it's a great line because he's just like, you know, yeah, he's going to be like. I don't trust you, but, you know, you got a good head on your shoulders. Because I'm all cool and smoky and hot. And you, you get <laughs> smoky and hot. Like, it, it's such... It's a funny line. But yeah. if you take it at face value, it's really nice to show that por- a positive, like, I think unburdened portrayal of a bisexual character. Uh, and secondly... Charlie Day came out in an interview, like on a red carpet, and I can't remember the interviewer's name or what publication they were with, which makes me very sad. Yeah, but we'll find uh, it. She was talking to Charlie Day about like fan fiction and this kind of like fanning around uh, Doctor Newton Geisler, his character, and Bern Gorman's character, Doctor Herman Gottlieb, being kind of like shipped and like portrayed as being in a homosexual romantic. Like, dynamic. I won't say relationship, but dynamic. And Charlie Day is just like, yeah, no, man, like, I've read a bunch of that stuff. And, like, it informs the performance. And I really dig it. Because, like, he specifically used the phrase to refer to Herman Gottlieb as, you know, the man he's in love with. And I do feel like there it's not just bullshit. I do yeah. feel like there is a genuine affection and, like, estrangement between those two characters. Which I think plays wonderfully into... Well, not in the film, it's just about. wonderful to have.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, I. you totally kind of get their chemistry again on screen. And I know for most people, those were like the two most lovable per- characters from Pacific Rim, the original. And they're really still as fun in, in this movie. And they're just negotiating a very different relationship than they've had before. It's nice so. because
1: in, in the first movie, they were kind of the odd couple. It's like this guy... This guy works science like this. This guy works science like this. This guy's a crazy kaiju head. This guy's a strict-by-the-books biology guy, whatever. And they kind of had to negotiate around each other. And here, you get this really great sense of them having been close and now are separated by circumstance and by time. Uh, Charlie Day, I think, also is just a stand-up performance because... We've already given you the spoiler warning, so no mercy here. But he is, he turns out to be the villain. And one thing I loved is, as I was watching this, I know that I really didn't like the costuming choice of the glasses. I felt like it made him a bad actor because he was behaving awkwardly. He didn't have the eye contact chemistry that he would normally have. And he was just like, portrays kind of bumbling. But that fits with the characterization of he is possessed and being manipulated and he's not quite human in this. So, wh- I I love stuff like that where a film can make you feel something as an audience member that clues you in to something that's actually in the fiction.
0: And his performance as Newt, like, it, it's great because it spirals out. Like, he goes from being very, like, kind of controlled but still a bit manic to just being all over the place. And... That makes him a really wonderful villain. Like, I was not expecting Charlie Day to to pull this off. But you know what? He used the Dennis system on the world, and it worked, apparently. The
1: other thing is also, he has fun being the bad guy. And that's something that we don't see as much as I think we should, is, like, yes, he is a cold, sinister force. The progenitors are coming, and they will kill you all. But also, he's like, yeah! Or, like, he's playful. He's like, you know, oh, you're always going with the giant robots. And it's fun. And it plays to the strengths of Charlie Day as an actor. Um, I will. I do have one criticism, though, and this is not with Charlie Day's performance, but I think with the direction and the editing so much, is they use a creepy voice filter to, like, play out the alien voice angle when he does. And I really think that it would have just been... I didn't been need a, that. Pss- no. I, I, first of all, you didn't need it. Second of all, I think it weakens the acting. Uh, yeah. It also has no, I think, mechanical definition or conceit to explain it in the fiction. Like, he doesn't yeah. have, like, an alien, imp- like, physically implanted in Implant, his vocal cords right. or something. Um, so it just comes across as being really cheesy. And I think it would have been great also. I think he has the range to go from, like, hey, you know, I'm mute, I'm crazy. I'm crazy, too. You know what? You guys are all going to fucking die. I think he could have pulled that off. Great. And. Even if he did pull that off, we will never know because we don't have those unedited cuts. So that's like that's one little gripe I have. But other than that, I loved him. Uh, Bern Gorman came back strong with. I think he played up a, the awkward, kind of like socially isolated, like almost on the spectrum kind of neuros- neurosis, a bit yeah. more. But yeah. But it also worked because he was, I think, less in his element and more uncomfortable he did more things that were like breaking into a building and like sneaking around so like it 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 totally worked and he was they're they're charming and they had wonderful chemistry together because i think they kind of really didn't interact with anyone else
0: yeah no not really like a lot of the movie focused on their relationship and how it was evolving and stuff um The only other person that Charlie Day really interacts with is um, Tian Jing's character, Li Wen Shao, who is the head of the Shao Corporation.
1: Tell me more about Li Wen Shao, because we love her.
0: Oh, she's so hot in this movie. She's, like, in control, in command. She has the most beautiful jacket when she's introduced to us. It's this beautiful white jacket with these really kind of, like, elaborate sleeves and... It's white and, like, her makeup's beautiful. Like, she just looks amazing in this and she seems commanding throughout the movie. And,
1: and th- that coat... It's compelling. That coat is all sharp lines. I love yeah. it. It's, yeah. like, it's not quite haute cocher, but it is, like, a very striking, very, like, no pedestrian could ever own this kind of coat. And it's love. And I, I feel a little cheated, in this and this is something where I'm a little more upset like this is nothing to detract from Tian Jing's performance or from the character of Li Wenxiao but more from the direction and the screenwriting of this film it and I, this is more of a direction thing because this is all visual coding that's not necessarily in the script although I'd have to have a look at a shooting script of this and that's another thing but she is coded so strongly as a villain she is coded as like you know the cal- the callous superior the the kind of bitchy power executive. She's coded as uh, manipulative with and that's actually the thing. I don't think they ever resolved that thread because I believe like did did uh, Newt send Obsidian Fury or did uh, did Li Wen Shao send that? I we don't know. It's never assumed.
0: Explained. Yeah, it's never explained. But I had assumed that it was Newt. That sent it actually, and not Shao. Yeah. But if any of well, our listeners notice that and actually yeah. know the answer, please tell us.
1: Well, that's the thing. I don't think it's a that is actually conclusively touched upon. Uh, it is known that it is made from Shao parts, but beyond that, we don't actually get any explanation. And I think, I think it has to be new because it has like a big uh, kaiju brain in it. I mean, and I th-
0: that's why I thought it was. So, yeah.
1: yeah. So it might have been an actual attempt. Because here's the thing. She is portrayed as so villainous. And I really... And the thing is, it's not her putting on an air of villainy. It's all this visual coding that seems to be pointed directly at us, the audience. So I don't feel like her character is necessarily being untrue to herself. I feel more like the framing and the camera and the film is lying to me. And here's the thing, like, you can have that visual coding, you can have that run, but she makes this lovely transition from being like this kind of, you know, bitchy power executive woman in power villain trope, like with these really like high society, air of decadence, lives in an ivory tower kind of coding, to, you know, going back to what presumably would be kind of her roots as, like, an engineer and a developer and a scientist in her own right. And she has, like, this lovely, friendly smile when she's, like, piloting Scrapper remotely and so on. But she's so power-hungry and, you know, downright sinister in the beginning that I I don't—I feel like it's more as a part of the plot contrivance than it is as an organic character path.
0: I really kind of agree with that. Like, I think the one actually semi-okay thing that comes out of this is this kind of inversion of the stereotype of Asian women as being passive or, you know, like being someone's secretary or like second in command, that type of stuff. Her character kind of allows for play with that and allows for uh, this movie to invert that by allowing her control She tells people what to do and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I also totally agree with you. I I think that that plot device where they're super coding her as this villainess with this, you know, very angular costume. I think it's overwrought. And um, it makes it hard to trust her in the second half of the movie too. And I'm just not sure that that's what they actually should have been going for. I think
1: a big part of it is the 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 turnaround on Newt is really sudden and surprising, and it makes a lot of sense. But at the same time, though, we get that scene where you know he has weird mind sex with the brain, and that kind of that that tips the hand a little bit. But I think did that happen before or after the attack in uh, Sydney?
0: I thought it happened slightly after.
1: Okay, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but one one of the shots that kind of sells her villainy. Uh, because later on, we learned that Obsidian Fury is made using Zhao tech. And I think at that point, it's still supposed to be ambiguous whether it's Zhao doing it or uh, or New. So at that point, when the Obsidian Fury drops the helipad and it almost crushes Zhao, we get a focus on her, and she seems so much in control there that it almost seems to read like oh, this is part of her plan, you know, everything is going... Like, we knew Gypsy Danger would be... Like, it, it, it's kind of like that David Zanatos level of villainy, where it's like, everything according to my design. And,
0: <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, think, I see that. I, and, I,
1: and, I, and I see her portrayal later in the film as being kind of inverse to her earlier portrayal where earlier she's commanding and aloof and later she's not quite deferential but open and warm. And while that is a good performance and it is a fun character trait for her to have there, um, I think it would have been better to either show that, you know, she can be a powerful executive and leader as a warm-hearted and accepting and open and communicative woman or to show that she could be a powerful, you know, cold-blooded power executive woman and also be a good guy. In a way, I feel like she's kind of two different characters in this.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with that.
1: And I think it's that duplicity that makes me go, something didn't quite mesh for me.
0: Yeah, no, I I think they needed stronger writing for this part for Zhao in particular. But yeah. Was there anything else that you were like, eh, this kind of doesn't work for me, or...
1: Nah, nah, nah. Well, we'll get to the robots in a second, but I just want (laughs) to do one last little note on the cast is... One thing is, like, we talked a little bit about this before, but, you know, there's some elements of this being produced or co-produced by Chinese companies and, you know, aiming some stuff for the Chinese market and so on. But what feels very organic to me is there's this lovely diverse cast. You've got John Boyega, you know, a black Englishman. You've got Scott Eastwood, you know, this is the sexy American. You've got Charlie Day. You've got uh, Tian Ling. You've got, if you just look, you've got Rinko Kikuchi coming back as Mako And I'll, I'll get to her in a second. But, you know, of the cadets, you've got cadets Shuresh, Jin Hai, Victoria, Ryochi, Mei Lin, Renata, Tahima, Ilya. There's, like, this wonderfully diverse cast. And beyond that, having the film's conceit and setting be that it's on these all these bases around the Pacific and away from the continental U.S., it has this wonderful sense that it's organic and natural and it's not... A conceit or it's not you know like it's not set in the ghetto to get all the black actors it's not set in india with all it's just these this kind of cosmopolitan gathering of characters in a way that is organic and they all have such wonderful chemistry together
0: it's kind of cool to see an international team of people working together i think it plays into contemporary stuff that's happening in the world right now where a lot of different nations are banding together Um, some, some people from the U S are certainly joining up with that. Some people aren't. And I think that kind of plays out in the movie. And it's just cool to see a cast that is diverse and also relates to each other so, so well. Like you really get the feeling that these people know each other from watching this movie, um, and from seeing them relate to one another, um, one of the things that I've seen criticized about this movie is some of the dialogue and I'm actually going to take issue with that. I think a lot of the dialogue specifically that written for John Boyega minus his little pep talk. Cause I thought that was corny. Um, I think a lot of the dialogue written for John Boyega felt very naturalistic and I really, really enjoyed that. Even the dialogue for Scott Eastwood too. Um, so kudos to the screenwriters on this cause this felt like what real people talk like. And I appreciated that.
1: Um, And regarding the feeling of connection, that's, I think, actually one of the brilliant little moves that I still take some issue with is the treatment of Makamori the character because she is one of the direct holdovers from the previous film. And uh, Rinko Kikuchi comes back for that role and she kills it in it. She's older, she's got uh, probably some makeup to enhance that effect. She's got this military dress going on and she has this really kind of like, not quite regal, but militaristic bearing that's very strong. And her dialogue with Jake Pentecost, the kind of establishment of, you know, talking about their dead father slash adopted father, and th- it really sells the – first of all, it really ties in with the theme of family. But also, it's a really good way to bring John Boyega in as, you know, the de- the heir apparent of uh, Stacker Pentecost without having to resort to, you know, like a dream sequence or a flashback. It's like – I just wanted to make you proud, Dad. I've always been <laughs> proud of you, son. You know? Because cause that's the only way you could have... Them. They have to have a connection or else you don't care about him. So having her be his adopted sister and having them, like, you know, reminiscing of that in this environment, like, that was a really brilliant way to establish that connection. And I, I love... I love Kikuchi in this. But I really hate that they brought her back to die. I really, yeah. really hate it. And that's yeah. the thing. I am not against, like, as a like hard and fast rule, bringing a character in to, you know, hold information or be a plot device and, you know, make that kind of sacrifice. The thing is, the plot, the choreography, and the blocking around that death is really ambiguous and kind of plotting. Because they have this whole thing where, like, Obsidian Fury shows up and we don't know what he's after. And we're also ambiguously saying, oh, is he trying to kill uh, Xiao or is he working for Xiao? And there is such a long period between when Obsidian Fury shows up and when it takes down the helicopter that you're like, they should have fucking landed. This is really stupid. And especially with how much they've been building up how important she is and how important she's, like, the deciding vote on the council for the drone program. So it's just, like... I, it's just not tight enough and it feels sloppy, and it makes it feel it makes me feel the artifice,
0: yeah, and I'm not sure like why why did that need to happen, so Kikuchi doesn't have any upcoming projects, so it's not something that interfered um the only thing that I can really think of is this whole idea of like we need to clear the way for a new generation i I hope that wasn't why they killed her off, but I suspect that it is. And I think that's stupid. Like, I don't think that's a good reason to kill off her character, especially in this way. Like I, I agree with you. I think it was plotting and a bit sloppy and I think they could have kept her on. Um, there's like, that was a cool moment to kind of like have her potentially be, you know, like take over the role that, um, stacker Pentecost has kind of, you know, given up to basically save the world by giving yeah, up his life. Cool. Yeah, um,
1: I will say, though, it does. Like I said, I think it's just kind of that scene that I have an issue with, because I think if it had been like if it had been like a more direct assassination, I think it probably worked, would worked better, because the thing is, right after that, we have a, this great scene where Jake is in front of like the wall of heroes and you have the holograms of all the pilots who died in the first Jaeger war. Or the first Kaiju War, and like that was a really it was really I think kind of touching to see her portrait up there front and center among you know the pilots of Cherno Alpha and Stacker Pentacles, like next to her adopted father. Like I think that was a great scene. It's just that little bit in the middle, just the one part that makes that work didn't work. Yeah, yeah, yep. So let's let's talk about the robots because this was kind of a big. It's a huge part of this film, and. This this is kind of the thing, like, yes.
0: I have questions. I have questions about the robots. Um, Because the whole time that I was watching this movie, I really felt like I was watching an anime. And you and I kind of talked about this a little bit before, but I didn't really have the language to talk about why I thought this felt like an anime. So can you help me out here? (laughs) Like, what exactly am I seeing?
1: First things first, I want to talk about the original Pacific Rim for just a second. Uh, because one of the things that the Pacific Rim did that was really kind of groundbreaking and revolutionary was, the se- first of all, the sense of scale. Because when we think of giant robots, when you look at like Optimus Prime, who's this huge giant robot, he's only like two stories tall, right? When you look at these robots, these things are like 80 meters tall. They're like 260 feet. It's ridiculous. And you feel the size of them. And in the original movie, in you know 2013 specific rim, they shake the earth when they walk. Uh, when Gypsy Danger takes that uh, takes that ship and beats a Kaiju, I think it's leatherback is that Kaiju, beats it in the face with it. like you feel how big it is. You see the entire world shake when it moves you can see the rain cascading off, and you get a huge sense of the scale of it. And that was the big thing that I was afraid of that would be gone from this movie is the sense of scale and weight. Because that's, I think, a touch that Guillermo del Toro spent a lot of time getting right is the sense that this is, in fact, like a 5,000-ton machine. Or I'm probably being conservative in that estimate. I'm not going to do the math for how much that metal weighs. Um... So, and here's the weird thing, is, like, they both do and don't have that in this film. Um, Because there are some scenes, like the initial Jaeger that chases down Scrapper, that one that looks kind of like a Jaeger mixed with Master Chief. Yeah. That one has a great sense of scale and weight. It's big, it's scary, it's kind of inexorable, like, nothing will stop it. And it's so much bigger than... The little Jaeger that they're in. However, later in the film, you've got the orange one, which is like Alpha Blade or whatever. I can't even remember its name. And we'll get to why that's a problem in a second. And that one's doing like flipping kicks and so on. So, when you, Annie, when you're talking about how this feels like anime... um, Yeah. There's a couple things that I think inform that. One, this film is so much more colorful than the original. Um, It's much more of it happens in daylight where a lot of... And also... One thing that was part of the original Pacific Rim that we don't really talk about is how much of it happened in the ocean or, on, like, at sea, in storms. Um, so much more of this film happens on dry land away from the sea because, you know, the kaiju rose up from the sea, like, in the tradition of Godzilla to smash and stomp and make fucking chaos. So when you have these things on dry land in the middle of the thing, you kind of lose that separation and also... Like, it kind of pulls away from, like, the metaphor that, you know, depending on your Altera theory and whether you believe who said what, that, you know, the kaiju also kind of, to a degree, represent, like, global warming and rising seas. Yeah. You separate them from that environment. So, first of all, it's much more colorful. Second of all, the quality of motion is very different. Uh, These mechs move much more quickly. Uh, They also are a little bit more gimmicky and toy uh, in particular, the shot that is in all the trailers where, you know, you've got the group shot and you show each of them brandishing their particular unique weapon. That feels very much to me like, you know, something where, OK, because uh, a lot of like really big like shonen manga, like you know manga for action manga for boys, uh, focuses on expanding their runtime and their ability to be published for long serialization by having these powers or magical artifacts or so on that are Like collectible and variant, and you know you can look like uh, this is this guy's magical artifact, and it makes a sword out of ice. This is this guy's magical artifact, and it's a whip made of fire. You know, and you have their different strengths, and you could because that's one of the things that gives these things longevity. Is like schoolyard discussions. It's like, oh yeah, my fire whip would melt your ice sword. Oh yeah, well my ice sword would like (laughs) make a sword out of blood. It'd be strong. Like you know, that's the kind of enthusiastic talk. And so when each of them has this like big like toyific weapon it feels a little silly and it feels like collectible you know
0: yeah like it's meant to sell toys
1: (laughs) yeah beyond that there's this kineticism to their movement is they move in much more human ways and just because we still do have some of that sense of scale i do think it feels you know bombastic and i think bombast is kind of a key part of what you're looking at here Uh, Look also at the kaiju. When you look at the kaiju from the original film, they are all these, like, modeled, like, cerulean kind of dark grays and blues. With, like, they'll be highlights, sure. They'll have, like, these bright glowing eyes or, like, this yellow patterning on them. But they'll always be against this backdrop of, like, this kind of modeled, like, sickly flesh color. And you look at the kaijus in this one, and they're much brighter, like the one with the shielded faceplate, that one's red in the center, like some kind of, like, chameleon, almost. Yeah. So, everything's brighter, more vibrant. Also, the thematics of it are much more anime as well. It's not, like, this kind of grim rising from the ocean monster apocalypse so much as it is, oh, Here's a bunch of giant robots with rocket boosters strapped to them flying into Tokyo to defend Mount Fuji from the super combining kaiju. That's anime as fuck.
0: Okay, yeah, because that was actually like the specific part where I was kind of like, this feels very anime. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, I actually really enjoyed it. And I was kind of thinking the whole time, like, man, if I was a kid right now, like, I would have been super into this. (laughs) Like, super, super into it. Um, I also really liked the, uh, you know, that weird moment where, um, the drone robots start partially turning into kaiju?
1: That was actually great.
0: Yeah, so, I really, I found it disturbing and interesting. Like, that was kind of cool.
1: Yeah. Well, here's the thing. And I want to get into kind of the generalities of super robot fiction and mecha fiction in the Western tradition because we don't have as much of it. And this is kind of where this film, I think, will perform differently with different audiences critically because of the kind of vocabulary we have about film. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to kind of go back deep into history here, but here's the thing giant robots are something that we don't see a lot of in film. Uh, off the top of my head, Uh, In the Western film tradition, we have Transformers, which is a recent phenomenon.
0: Right. We have
1: the Power Rangers movie, I think, like, Enter the Goo or whatever. (laughs) Enter the
0: Goo. (laughs) That's kind
1: of all, like, real steel, kind of, not really. Oh, no. Can you think think of anything else,
0: Annie? Uh, Iron Giant? But even then, like, that's... No,
1: Iron Giant's Mm -hmm. an animated film. And also, here's Uh. the thing. This is a very established tradition in... Uh, Japanese, particularly in anime and manga, but also there's a distinction between robots and mecha. Because a robot is its own character. Astro Boy is a robot. Optimus Prime is a robot. Yeah. Gypsy Danger is a mecha. A mecha is like a vertical tank or a you know it's a vehicle it's a robot that a person drives maybe that person fuses with its heart and becomes some kind of embodiment of a soul of it like in Evangelion or maybe like it's piloted mechanically but whatever it is it is an extension of a person and it is not in itself a thing Uh, so in that like I think the only real precursor is Power Rangers and here's the thing about Power Rangers is that's weirdly kind of stolen from Super Sentai because Power Rangers is not a wholly American production. It is a Franken-series that was made from footage of Super Sentai shows. That's why you have things like, oh, um, this season they're all driving cars and we don't really have a good explanation for it. It's just, you know, you change the thing. And you can look at some of the older stuff and you can see, like, there's a difference in film stock and cinematography that you can tell that the high school stuff was filmed separately from the monster fighting stuff. So, anyways, in anime, Mecha goes back to stuff like Gigantor, or as it's known, I think it's like Tetsujin 57 or something, I think is the original name. And so, in the mainstream Western film canon, we have basically no... Kind of continuity of precedent. Okay. We have no precedent. Okay. So I think to the general movie-going public, this is like, oh wow, what if there were robots, but these robots didn't need to have pilots, <gasps> but they took that link and they corrupted it, and the monsters use them. Oh no! Like that's really cool. That is a cool story. But here's the thing. I watch a lot of anime. <laughs> and <laughs> I think a lot of Del Toro fans watch a lot of a
0: lot of yeah there's a lot of people who do so yeah
1: so when you have someone who is kind of immersed because here's the thing we've been japan has been doing giant robots since the 60s uh they had gundam in the 80s they had neon genesis evangelion in the mid 90s and that's some crazy shit like that Super robots have been around so long in Japan that we've distinguished between realistic robots and, like, robots for military fiction, like in Gundam, to, like, super robots, like, you know, uh, Grun Lagan or Gao Gaigar. And uh, there was this whole cultural moment in 1995 when Neon Genesis Evangelion came out, and they said— what well, what if robots weren't like this super awesome thing? What if like using them was harrowing and destruction, and we made a whole show that's like a Freudian deconstruction and an examination of like the death drive, and you know, uh, yeah. we're the whole thing in Christian imagery and fucking you know, uh, Jewish occultism and all that, and it's fucked up and it's messed up and it's whatever, and like everyone kind of followed that trend for a while, and then like, there are movements and there are. Uh, entire artistic schools of how to portray and write these stories. So when I watch this film and I see, okay, uh, we've got all the mass-produced ones are getting set out there, and uh, there's a core. It's like, yeah, the the kaiju are coming through that. The the, the this, this bad guy. Like I, I I predicted the plot except for who would be performing certain actions, pretty much to a T, and like that made it so that. The factor of watching this film and not knowing what was going to come was kind of removed from me, and I still had fun. But as a Western film, it's quite novel, as a mecha film, it's really old hat, which is why, like, like, in the toe tag, yeah, I called it like it's a shitty Ava (laughs) movie.
0: Okay, so there's like this broader context for this that. I just didn't have, in part because it's really been through this podcast and through my friendship with you, um, and also to a certain extent, like, my partner has introduced me to anime as well, I, I still have a very cursory understanding of it. So it's good to get this context because, uh, the stuff that I was seeing did look kind of new to me, but for some reason had this kind of anime aesthetic to it that I couldn't quite figure out how to talk about.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Now, one thing I do want to talk about briefly, and this is one thing where I do feel like this film has disappointed me again, because here's the thing. I don't have this problem with the original film. Um, Specifically, uh, there's two reasons for that. One is the aesthetic of Pacific Rim, of the original Pacific Rim, is much more grounded, much more realistic. It's Kind it it's large in scale, but it's closer to something like mech warrior or battle tech, where it's these giant realistic things that have these limitations and this placement and this these very big difficulties. Like what in this movie, they have to get to Japan, so they strap like kaiju blood rockets to them. In the original Pacific Rim, they move them like three miles out to sea and they're lifting them by chopper and then dropping them in this huge like ordeal. So there's this difference in aesthetics of how they're utilized and how they move. And that was much more grounded in the first film. But also, in the first film, it was also a more developed and more interesting meditation on the mecha concept. Because the big conceit of that was that you needed two pilots who would sync together and be able to, like, basically share a brain space. Become the left brain and right brain of the robot. They had these big, you know... Uh, mechanized things that would hold on to their feet. And they had that, like, they walked really slowly in that. And it was a big part of that movie was, I forget his name. Hold up one second. A big part of that movie was Raleigh Beckett trying to uh, drift with Makomori and having that problem. Like there was a central metaphor to what the robot was. And The robot was almost less important than this idea of this team of two people becoming a completely synchronized fighting force and being completely vulnerable and open to each other in order to be effective at combating this inhuman threat. It was, you know, where, you know, something like Evangelion is like, you know, um, you must like, you know, uh, the defenses of angels are the absolute divisions between the perceptions of... Of a united whole versus individual beings like you know the metaphor gets complex and it's not just literally hey here's giant robots and monsters
0: which and is this, yeah i think we lost that in this one we qu- like quite a bit because
1: there are allusions to it but i don't think that the uh auth- the, the writers necessarily understand what made that metaphor so strong because you have Kelly spaney who plays Amara namani in this Yeah, And she has issues drifting. She has issues becoming a pilot. And she's built Scrapper, which is this little tiny mech, this tiny Jaeger that doesn't need two people. And rather than that being something that she has to overcome or that is a real struggle that we explore with in depth... Uh, we kind of just go through the motions of, oh no, she remembers when she was sad and the kaiju killed her parents. Right. No. Yeah. But now she can drift. Now she can drift with Jake Pentecost, and it's just, it's. I think it's nothing more than an obstacle to her because here's the thing. She's a, a... <sighs> Kaylee did a great performance. She's very charming. I love her scenes in the barracks with the other cadets. Those are great, but as a mech pilot, I'm not really invested in her success or failure because I've not really seen that struggle. Um, So yeah, the
0: characterization for her is, is not strong. And I think part of that characterization, like you were explaining that really comes from drift compatibility, which doesn't seem to be a plot point in the movie um, that goes deeper.
1: This, this was part of why I I think the, the drift metaphor is interesting uh, especially in the original Pacific Rim, because in a way, it's almost like sex. You know, you've got Riley Beckett, and you've got Makamori, and it's about compatibility. It's about being on the same wavelength. And it's also, it's about this kind of nonverbal communication and this vulnerability. It's opening yourselves up to each other. And in this, it's just kind of, you know, it's kind of slutty, you know. Uh, Jake Pentecost can drift with Nate Lambert. He can drift with uh Ma- He can drift with, you know... uh, They they have brains that are there to test and to practice. They have simulations. And it just... It feels weightless and kind of limp. And it's just... It it doesn't have the weight of what the metaphor was. So I think... In particular... I think if you had started with Pacific Rim 2, I wouldn't be harping on this nearly as much. It's that it draws from the original without fully understanding what made the original work
0: exactly exactly yeah and i would say that's actually the major problem in this film is that it's drawing on this original source material it doesn't understand why the plot points work um in terms of drift compatibility too like you have this sort of like age divide between john boyega's character and um amara the the younger girl character so like the sex metaphor does not work with them. Um, it's more like the vulnerability of friendship, but the film doesn't really explore that in depth enough to, to flesh that metaphor out. So, Well,
1: actually, to take yeah. this metaphor in a kind of creepy direction for a second, though, is we're not shown his vulnerabilities in that drift. We see her losing herself to this traumatic memory, and we see him try to guide her back from it, and we see her struggle with that. But it's a two-way exchange and in this way like it feels like this really imbalanced power exchange and that like, it, it, like i said i don't want to apply the metaphor here because specifically the it's not built around it but if you like if you think about like that's part of why it doesn't work well is because it's disregarding a lot of what made that so important and also made the situation so dire uh what it becomes, an, it, it becomes kind of like Dragon Ball-y, where it's like, do you have the required power level?
0: Right. Where it's like a hoop you have to jump through instead of a way of evolving a character. Yeah.
1: And, yeah, like, another character I want to bring up here is uh, Cadet Victoria, as played by Ivana Sakno. Or Sakno. Yeah, Sakno. Uh, because one thing is, she is shown to have this kind of combative relationship with Amara. And they end up having to drift together. And I love that because out of the Jaeger, they have this wonderful evolving dynamic. They're antagonistic, you know, they insult and they fight with each other. And I love it. And after the rousing speech, they drift together. But here's the thing: they're in a Jaeger that has a three-part three-pilot setup, right? And Normally, that's, like, whatever. Cool, because there was the Chinese one, uh, Crimson Typhoon, in the original. And that's not that unusual. But here's the thing. Uh, Amara and the other cadet are kind of running the walking kind of program and, you know, performing the actions and piloting the Jaeger like you see. But uh, specifically, the no other Jaeger has required, like, active aiming. It's like everything is kind of... An integral part of the machine that you control with your thoughts or with gestures but when they want to fire the chest guns on that mech uh victoria pulls out of the link and then goes down in an elevator very much like the millennium falcon and shows up out the front and shoots the guns and also the guns can switch around to the back and the whole pot, uh mini cockpit can swivel around and shoot backwards so In that, it breaks the metaphor even further in that, like, I feel like she was never part of the Drift and that she was just there as a fancy tail gunner.
0: Yeah, and maybe also to look like um, Mercy from Overwatch a tiny bit. (laughs) A little Um, bit.
1: And possibly uh, the daughter of the Russian pilots from the first film. We don't know.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. Like, I think the writing for her, like, I feel like we're missing a scene. Like, there was a scene that ended up on the cut floor um, because they were just like, well, the movie's just running too long. Like, there was something missing from her characterization that I think could have um, added weight to that moment where she goes down um, to activate those gun turrets. So But I, I think that's just part of the overall issue with the movie is that uh, it's missing some of those moments of characterization that lend a lot of weight to the storyline and raise the stakes for the characters. So,
1: Yeah, at the same time, though, like, it does a lot of smart things. In particular, I re- I really like the entire betrayal by Newt. The entire thing works out great. And he-, he has so much fun doing the villain. But one thing I really like is this dynamic is because he's not just... He's not just possessed. Because one thing I love is he's acting with his human intelligence... And this kind of progenitor, uh, sorry, this kind of, pre- is it precursor or progenitor?
0: I think it's progenitor.
1: Yeah, he's working with his progenitor my- it- drive, but this human intellect in that he hides away all the code and the genetic material inside, like, automated subroutines. But also, the way he, com- the when he releases the swarm of robots, like the Stitchers, as I'm gonna call them. I don't know what they were called in the film. I think it was displayed on a screen for half a second. But they they go out and they swarm, and you're going, oh no, what are they gonna do? Is he gonna attack these Jaegers with all this, you know, uh, stuff? But instead, they cannibalize three kaiju and then Frankenstein them together to make a mega kaiju. And it's just like, wow. First of all, that's really cool. Second of all, like, it's really sinister. It's this kind of, like, yeah, the kai, the kaiju are going to come. And instead of saying, like, I will help the kaiju, it's looking at the kaiju as a resource to be exploited or optimized to accomplish his goal. Now, his goal is the same as that of the kaiju. It's just, you know that they're not on the same page. And I kind of love that.
0: Yeah, that was a really interesting moment where that kaiju just kind of, like, looks him in the eye, and you get this feeling that Newt does not have full control over this character, and there's something really intimidating and scary about that. Um, I also love that moment where he flips over. I I thought that was great. I love the chemistry between him and, um, what's his name? <laughs> Um, literally me? what's his name? Yeah. Gopi. Um, yeah, yeah we've, Herman. we've already
1: covered that. Doing we
0: this. have, but I, I think what's kind of cool is that moment when Herman figures out that there's something really wrong with him where like Newt basically tells him he's going to end the world. And you just see like, you see heartbreak
1: oh, in,
0: no, um, Herman's face. That was a really great moment.
1: Okay. So I want to go back to the robots for a second. Because the other thing, and this is the other feeling of the movie, is I can name most of the Jaegers from the first film. You've got Gypsy Danger. You've got Cherno Alpha. You've got Striker Eureka. You've got Crimson Typhoon, right? I can't remember any of the Jaegers. First of all, because they're much more homogenized. They're much more humanoid. But secondly, the original ones were so over-designed and developed to the point where they felt so grounded and realistic. It's, like, it's not just that, like, they're really detailed, but also, like, some of those details have drawbacks and flaws. Uh, like, Cherno Alpha's entire design is built to be reminiscent of, first of all, like, the vertical shaft of a sub- nuclear submarine, but also of, like, the coolant tower at, like, a nuclear power plant. It's, bi- like, its face is is actually like this tiny little plate at the bottom of that. The top of its head is not where its command center is, like every other thing. Um, Crimson Typhoon has three arms and these blades. And specifically, it's piloted by these three Chinese guys who are, and I think they're all brothers, and they play basketball, and they, ha- you get this sense that there's a sacrifice they made in that they have to have these super homogenous, super synchronized pilots who kind of have to Sacrifice a lot of who they are in order to remain so in sync as to be able to pilot and they do these impossible maneuvers like flipping over backwards and reversing the direction of the mech and all of the Jaegers in this one I feel are so much less unique uh, with the possible exception of Obsidian Fury. Because Obsidian Fury has that kind of mysterious massed assailant menace to it. Like, it's a similar kind of charisma that Bucky Barnes has in Winter Soldier. Yeah,
0: yeah. Where
1: it's just cold and controlling and... Like, you understand enough to know what it is, but not how it happened. So it really commands a scene. Uh, And, like, even our hero mech, our, you know, Gypsy Avenger... Is derivative of something that's still fresh in our mind. I think if you wanted to do this in like kind of generational terms, like you want to do, I could see you naming a mech Gypsy Avenger, maybe like three or four generations of mech down, but not the very next one. Uh, combine that with like the really like you said, animation. Like here's here's one thing that happened that I think you will agree with me is super fucking anime is the orange one, the one that looks like Baymax, because that's what it looks like to me. It has two swords, which is cool. It's very agile, also cool. But what happens at the end when they get super serious and they need to take out the super kaiju is it puts its swords together to make one bigger sword. That's dumb as shit.
0: Yep. Yes, it is very dumb. (laughs)
1: Um, and, like, I don't mind that the big stocky one has, like, this kind of serrated mace. I don't mind that at all. What I do mind is that it's bigger than its head and also that, like, it's basically round and that it shoots out on a fucking chain, you know? It's it's that kind of, like, toy-like, silly, well, you know what? You know what would be cool? This kind of thing. Whereas the original mechs have this sense that they've made sacrifices and de- design compromises, and they're grounded and they're clunky and they barely work, but they're designed to do this one thing. Because here, here's the thing. Um, and it, it's kind of a weird contradiction of this is I don't want any toys from this one. I had an at my work at an animation studio. I had a, st- a action figure of Cherno Alpha on my desk because that design was so fucking cool. It went up on the company Christmas tree and (laughs) it was good because each of those was unique and distinct. Uh, my partner has like a, like, I think 10 inch tall knife head because like it's got four arms and it's got those weird, like splined off forearms and there's these really cool iconic designs. Whereas in this one, it's like, okay, this is the orange one. This is the stocky green one. This is the blue hero one with the red chest. And that's kind of what I was being afraid of, is that big group shot where, you know, you track through each of them and they all show off their cool weapons. Is that's where it feels more like actors in suits than these giant machines. And also that these motions are so superfluous is that they're not preparing to do anything. They're just gesturing. They're posing for the camera. And that's kind of where this movie kind of falls apart for me because you have some scenes like when uh, Gypsy Avenger slams its fist together and the whole thing shakes and you can see the shockwave reverberate through their arms. Or when it's fighting with uh, Obsidian Fury and that that's where I can kind of accept them being more human-like because they've advanced the technique of combat with these things and there, it's like an MMA fight where they're doing like, you know, leg bars and – Uh, scissor kicks and shit like that dunking each other into the ice like that's really cool and i could accept it if the entire thing was used that way but when the baymax robot is doing like a jumping flip slice to the back because here's the thing i see no i see no actual logical reason why the baymax mech couldn't have taken out the mega kaiju by itself
0: That's a good question, it, and I don't really know.
1: Yeah, like, I, I don't have a good answer for that. Yeah. Because it can jump clear the t- height of the thing. It's fast enough. The only reason it doesn't is because the script said it had to get hit and get taken out. So, you know, that's, I think, where this film kind of fails in that... It's interesting because, like I said, I think this is probably very palatable to people without a grounding in mecha fiction and storytelling and design. But I think it's those failings to be advanced and developed along those storytelling traditions that takes me out of it. Is like if I were like a child or a teenager watching this, I'd be like, yeah, yeah, that was cool. Do a flip. But. As I am today, as an mature audience member, I'm just like, yeah, why didn't you just do that three more times? <laughs> you know? Yeah. But on the whole, I still had fun. And this is one of those things. And this is like, like Annie, this is one of those things I'm always doing where I'm like, you know, this is a great film if you have no concept of time, you know, like, you know, if you miss the first five minutes and fall asleep right before it ends, it's great is moment to moment without looking at what's coming before an action without examining the causality of this film. I have a lot of fun in the experiential moment-to-moment watching of this film.
0: Yeah, I mean, like, I had a lot of fun watching this, too. Like, I think it's totally fine for us to be like, here are the structural problems with this movie because there's quite a, a few. But, like, also, if you just come into this movie taking it at face value, you are probably going to enjoy it a lot. You're going to enjoy... Um, like I saw this on a big screen, and seeing these gigantic robots in these cities, like I got sucked into it, so you probably will too yeah and i and I think that's fine it It's a big,
1: dumb, giant robot action movie, and that's something that is gonna be novel and is gonna be cool for a lot of people and I think it's it's a worthy addition to the series, whether we like it or not uh for a couple of reasons is We weren't going to get another Pacific Rim that was like the first Pacific Rim. Even if Del Toro was doing it, we would have gotten something very different, I think. It's been a long enough time, and Del Toro has explored different enough things that I think he would want to do something very different with it. And I think it would fix some of the superficial problems with the film, but ultimately we don't know what it would have been. And big dumb action is fun. I enjoyed this film, and... Here's the, here's the thing also that I think is important is this is a big, dumb action pole. This is a big, dumb tentpole action film. It has giant robots in it, which is like new and exciting for American audiences and has the potential to expose them to, you know, a whole bunch of like, you know, people might go on, like maybe this will pave the way for a Gundam film to be in a big international release. But also, also... This is a big, dumb, tentpole action film with an arguably bisexual lead, uh, with a character as informed by the actors in a gay romance, with this huge, diverse crew of, of uh, leadership, of women, of children, of varying nationalities and races. Of, as a big, dumb action flick, this is kind of a new breed. And as much as you, as much as you could maybe deride it for being, yeah, it's just kind of a simple action flick. It's nothing but robots and punching. It's robots and punching, but, and if that's what it is, I'm more than happy to see more films like this. Cause I mean, you go back, I think something that might be kind of close to this is like real steel where it's like, eh, it's a dumb boxing movie, but also, but also like a dad movie and also like with robots. But it's, you know, still like, here's this white guy from blue-collar America and his kid, you know? It's it's a step forwards in kind of how films are made from a societal point of view, if not from a structural point of view.
0: Yeah. Yep. I have and to that's really it. exciting. Yeah, there is something kind of fun and exciting about it, so.
1: Any closing thoughts, Annie?
0: I think people should go and see this movie. I think you'll have a good time. Um, don't believe the critics. They seem to be very cranky right now.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I'm excited for Pacific Rim 3 because here's the thing. The, 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 because Annie, you missed the trailer, Stinger. Is in the post credits, uh, yeah, someone comes up yeah. to Newt and he's still possessed, and Newt's like, ah, We will destroy your world. It doesn't matter a hundred years, a thousand years, we will own this world. And I think it was John Boyega, but he's like, you know, Yeah, well, guess what? You don't have to worry about that. Tell your precursor buddies, we're coming for them. And here's the thing. Mm. Here's the thing about that. Is, first of all, like, jingoistic American fucking geopolitics and interventionism aside. Yeah. Like, that's kind of a nasty side effect of that. But, like, an an expeditionary invasion movie is going to be a really different film from this film. Yes. Yep. even though they've taken it in a very safe, kind of logical way to go with a sequel, but they've also kind of painted themselves into a corner where they they have to make an interesting movie.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no. I I look forward to the third one. I think it's going to be different and distinctive from this one, but has a lot of potential. Hey, look, if the third
1: film is Pacific Rim 3 Apocalypse Now... I am so on board.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh. Dear Studios, please make that.
1: You, you know you want to see that one, Annie.
0: Uh, yes, I, yes, I would. I would really like to
1: okay. see that. Anyways, this has been The Movie Mork. Follow us on Twitter at The Movie Mork Podcast. Uh, like us on Facebook. Uh, subscribe and rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, I've been Silvio Emery. You guys can follow me at Twitter at Double Doc MD.
0: And I'm Annie Neller, and you all can follow me at Twitter and Instagram at, at Lights and Music. Uh,
1: you guys can find all those links in the show notes, as well as a link to our intro music, uh, which is Trouble by the band Ipsofactopus, link to their band camp in the description, uh, and also to our Patreon. Uh, if you like what we do, maybe throw us a dollar and uh, join us on our Discord where we continue these conversations, blah, 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 blah. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we will see you all next week. Bye bye.
0: Bye.